Last week, if you can remember that far back, last week we talked about how to forgive people who have hurt you badly. And we saw how hanging on to unforgiveness just hurts you. And we saw how deeply central forgiveness is to the nature of God. Jesus' blood was shed so that God could forgive. We often go on to, we go on to the next part after that. But the core thing is Jesus shed his blood in order that God could forgive so that he could find a way, a way to forgive every sin ever committed. So that primarily says God is a forgiving God. Think about it. He creates the heaven, he creates the earth, humankind, and what's he want to do when he's created it? Well, he wants to enjoy it, doesn't he? And then Adam and Eve go somewhere they are never meant to go, into the realm of knowing right from wrong. And so that means that sin is now an issue to be solved by God. And forgiveness, which is the way of solving that, becomes necessary if a holy God is going to be able to save and reinstate an honourable relationship with what has become an unholy creation. So if God found a way to forgive sinners, then we've got to learn from his ways and find a way to forgive sinners, of whom we are chief, aren't we? So just to recapping still, what do we do when we forgive? The first thing is we resist thoughts of revenge. Think of this scripture. Bless those who persecute you. Bless them, see? There's no revenge in there. Bless them. Bless and do not curse. What else? Well, we don't seek to do them mischief, do we? 1 Thessalonians reminds us very clearly, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. And that includes the person who hurts you. What else do we do? We wish them well. Well, see that in Luke 6. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. That is wishing them well, isn't it? Then we must also say something goes wrong for them. We have to grieve at their calamities. Go back to Proverbs and it reminds us from there, do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. Gee, that's a toughie, isn't it? Yeah. Don't get... Uh, don't uh, get all happy because uh serves them right. No, we don't do that. We do not gloat. What else must we do? Pray for them. Pray for them. But I tell you, says in Matthew, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Persecuting normally leads to hurt, doesn't it? Even more seek reconciliation if it's possible as far as it depends on you live at peace with everyone that's reconciliation trying to live at peace with everybody and then what about this forgiveness means always being willing to come to their relief 
Uh, we go back to Exodus to see, well, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back. Don't herald it into your top packet, paddock. No? Take it back to theirs. That's the enemy. Because we should always have a forgiving heart. That's our default position, isn't it? And what are the stakes? Matthew 18. This is how you, my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Whoa. How high are the stakes involved in forgiveness? It's very easy to minimise its importance, isn't it, in the face of how hard it is to do. Well, look at Matthew 6.15. But if you do not forgive others' sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's pretty plain, isn't it? That's pretty plain. Unforgiveness in that verse sounds pretty much like you could lose your salvation here. Fortunately, we balance that with other verses like nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But this verse is saying forgiving others is very, very important. To God. Check that out from Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassion, compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And we can see in that verse that God's forgiveness is under our forgiveness. God's forgiveness is a foundation. It creates and supports our need to forgive. And so if we don't give forgiveness to others, it raises the question, is God really in your life? And so that's the recap of the last one. Let's move on. We've been talking about forgiving others. And if you thought that was hard, what about when you're the problem? What about... When you've done or said something, and it might have been right, it might have been wrong, but it becomes obvious, after a while you need to apologise. You need to say sorry and ask for forgiveness. What if we need to ask forgiveness? Nod your head if you ever struggled with the S word. You know that I'm sorry. <laughs> We've all struggled, struggled with that, haven't we? Because when it comes to admitting that we've messed up, that we're in the wrong, hindrances seem to rise up immediately within us. Oh, it wasn't my fault. Oh, it was an accident. Oh, I didn't mean for it to come out that way. Oh, you're just being overly sensitive. Don't take it personally. I yell at everyone. Our pride and our need to save face, our need to not be embarrassed, our fear of being exposed, or our reliance on always being right, or our reliance on being seen to be competent, on having it all together, the list of things that keep us from saying the S word, saying the right word at the right time, that list is endless, isn't it? And so before we look at the elements involved in using the S word properly, saying sorry, 
and we'll consider some guiding principles from the scriptures. Because you see, we need to have something to hold ourselves to, which is a higher standard than the emotions and the thoughts which run freely through our minds when we know we should ask for forgiveness. Because we need to have something to hold on, something scriptural to hold on. Because it's very easy to have your ideas a bit screwy here. So one of the first principles behind what we do is that we need to be proactive in seeking reconciliation. We've got to take the initiative. We not wait until they're ready to admit their part of the wrong. No, we don't wait until they're ready to do that because we're called to take the lead, to ask for forgiveness in order to get past the hurt, in order to fix up a relationship, in order to re-establish a friendship and working relationships, in order shortly in short, is to be reconciled. And we're going to look at a chapter from Matthew, chapter 5, and we'll see that this taking of initiative in seeking reconciliation is actually foundational to acceptable worship. So if you've not tried to patch up a broken relationship, then coming along to a worship service is actually a bit of a hollow experience. Getting right with others, you see, comes before singing a good praise and worship session. It's unlikely, in fact, that God will receive your worship if you're secretly despising your brother. So we better check that out from Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. And Jesus is saying, he says, there, You've heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But... I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into a fiery hell. And therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, so in other words, therefore, if you're at church and there you remember that your brother has something against you, well, leave your offering there before the altar and go. Leave church and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come back and worship. Come and present your offering. And if it's a really bad thing, make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you're with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison because truly I tell you you'll not come out of there until you've paid up the last cent be proactive that's what we see in the middle there if you're presenting your offering at the altar never remember your brother something against you leave the offering there and go and first be reconciled. So another thing in this asking forgiveness, at the back of it, is that love is a guiding principle. You see, when you're worried about how you're going to look if you apologise, when you, you don't really want to appear like you're a pushover, you don't want to look like you're weak or indecisive, you really need to understand that you're mostly thinking about yourself. You're mostly self-absorbed. And the antidote, the antidote for being self-absorbed is love. For love wants to know what the other person is feeling at the moment, not how hurt you are. Love 
tries to enter into their world, tries to understand what's going on for them in the wake of your bungle. Love forgets self. Because love doesn't want to keep score of who was wrong this time. I see that backed up in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate. That's love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. And because in Christ God forgave you. You are forgiven first. Love's a guiding principle. But also being a peacemaker is a guiding principle. We see Matthew 5, 9 very clearly. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. You see, our calling is not to get bitter. Our calling is to get better, to do everything we can to make peace, to be a peacemaker. Another guiding principle why we, do these, why we look for forgiveness is that living as children of light is a principle. Ephesians tells us you were, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And so, if you are, walk as children of light. Live it out. And what's the light? A bit of explanation in verse 9. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness. There's goodness. There's righteousness. There's truth. And so, if you think back to Matthew 5, 23 and you remember your brother's got something against you we ask the question where it says remember your brother's got something against you who's actually in the wrong there was it something against you because it was your fault or was it something against you because it was his fault it doesn't say really that closely it could be either way it brings up the issue of the fact that sometimes we we know that it's not our fault and sometimes it's more than just not our fault. There are blatant accusations. There are false accusations and persecution. Earlier in Matthew 5, it said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And we certainly feel that way uh, when we've been hurt or when there's a, a problem. Rejoice and be glad, though, says Jesus, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So even if it's not your fault, you still, according to Matthew 5, should still try to go and sort it out. But if it's not possible, then it's not possible. And that's okay. And it's important to understand where the boundary lies between what's possible and what's not possible because we'll get all torn up inside if we, we've tried and it's not possible and we're still living in the other side trying to make it possible, trying to fix an unfixable situation. Our task is just to do what is possible and leave the rest to the Lord. Confirm that from Romans 12, if it is possible, as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. Another guiding principle, confessing your sins to one another. What? To one another? Let's check that out. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to each other. Wow. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. 
Well, we know from Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if you think about that, if that's your default position, none of us are perfect. And people who are happy to ask forgiveness adopt that understanding. They don't live as though making a mistake is just an isolated occurrence. They don't live as though making a mistake is a dreadful thing to be avoided at all costs. Forgiving people understand that mistakes are inevitable and they're unavoidable and they're a natural part of life and they're not to be afraid of, they're not to be avoided, they're not to be ignored and they don't diminish life. Rather, they are a natural part of life and owning your mistakes and accepting them and knowing how to handle them enriches your relationships rather than diminishes relationships. In fact, to apologise properly actually draws people closer together. It shows that you care about the hurt you've caused someone. It shows that you've cared about their feelings. It shows that you are concerned for their well-being. And if they can see that you feel their pain, that you really do know what they've gone through, then they feel validated, they feel accepted, and they can experience healing. And they can also feel more connected to you because you've shared that hurt with them. That is, if you really have empathically felt the hurt themselves. And a serious apology does do that. So James 5.16 again, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. See that connection, confession and healing go together. You know, saying sorry feels painful, doesn't it? But it's the pain of healing. It's the pain of surgery where a knife goes in and cuts out the bad stuff and it's painful during and just after the operation. But then the bad stuff's all gone and healing can occur. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. Without regret. Leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. See, when you mess up and you need to apologise, you can feel a great amount of sorrow. But when that sorrow leads on into repentance into you changing your mind and your direction and leads on to you making restitution, the sorrow saves the situation. It's a godly sorrow which leaves you without regret. Unfortunately, it's on the other side of apologising and asking forgiveness. And note also in that passage from James the community aspect of confession James says to confess your sins to each other. And although sometimes your sins, some of your sins are just between you and God, if it's a relational sin, then it should be between you and the other person, between you and the Christian community. And there are no hard and fast rules about it, but in general, the more public a sin, the more public should be the apology. So that brings us then to the apology. And because we learn often by contrast, we'll say, we'll look first at how not to do it. 
And Kingsall is a wonderful uh, illustration of how not to apologise. We'll go to 1 Samuel 15 in a moment. And he's just defeated his enemy and, and Samuel comes in to see how he's done and he hears and sees that Saul hasn't followed the instructions. So what's the first thing Saul does? Denial. 1 Samuel 15, then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord, and I went on the mission the Lord has sent me, and I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Well, usually we mess up because we've got a, a blind spot. We think we're right on track, and then when we find that we aren't on track, we sort of incredulously deny it, and it's a sort of a knee-jerk, impulsive first reaction. What? What are you talking about? And if we don't get past that instinctive first reaction and learn from it, then the trouble's going to fester. And so the call for us is not to get immediately offended when we're pulled up on something, but to say, oh, this is an opportunity to discover a blind spot. This is an opportunity for me to become a bit more mature and to take an opportunity to grow in my capacity to genuinely love you. So denial was the first thing. What was the second thing? Deflect. So Samuel pressed further to confront Saul with his incomplete following of instructions. You see, Saul was supposed to wipe out the livestock, but you can hear the sheep bleeding over there. Hmm. And there Saul, faced with incontrovertible evidence, hand caught in the cookie jar. So what does he have to do? He owns up. But he immediately blames someone else. And so doing, he invalidates his owning up, his admission. He denies his real responsibility. See that in verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, Oh, yes, I've sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and I listened to their voice. And the first rule of apology is actually to own up unreservedly to what you've done, to accurately state what went on. But Saul here, he, he admits to sinning, but he immediately has an excuse. Oh, I feared the people. He was just being a political leader there where he thought, oh, what are the people thinking? Oh, they're thinking that. I'll oh, run out and get in front of them and say, here I am leading you. Deflection. So it leaves us with the thought that he actually was only sorry because he got caught. Sorry he got caught. And so at the end of being forced into a corner like a rat, just sorry he got caught. And that's a big lesson for us. We don't fess up to keep the little woman pacified, guys. <laughs> we fess up because we're really concerned about her. We don't follow the teacher's instructions just to get her out of our hair. We do it because we want to learn. So that brings us to the aspects of a good apology. A good apology. What's the first thing? And we've talked about it. Number one, just own up. Be honest. Be transparent. Admit what went down. For example, oh, I'm sorry for, or I apologise for, or feel really bad about. And 
love the translation of the New Living Testament of Ephesians 4.25 starts off, so stop telling lies. Stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbours the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And, you know, telling the truth, look at Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions. He's owning up to them. I know my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. I love Proverbs 14.9. Fools make fun of guilt, but the godly acknowledge it and seek reconciliation. That's a, a life verse, that one. The godly acknowledge it and they seek reconciliation. So that's uh, step number one of a good apology, own up. Number two, empathy. I know that I hurt you and I'm sorry. Well, this is wrong because or it made you feel, uh, oh, I wish I hadn't. They're just examples. Empathy, because you can usually see that the other person is hurt. So acknowledging what you see is a good starting point, isn't it? And whilst you can have a pretty good guess about how they feel, don't ever say, oh, I know how you feel. It's ultimately best to ask them, what did you feel? How are you feeling about it? And then listen undefensively. That's a hard one, isn't it? A tough situation. Just listen undefensively until they are completely talked out. Empathy is part of a good apology. Romans 12:15, empathy. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. That's empathy. And one of the best ways to stop something hurtful that you do is to really feel what it does to the other person. And they've learned this in trying to rehabilitate prisoners in the criminal system. They will, sometimes they'll bring them into a meeting and they'll get them to sit down and they'll get them to listen to the family talk about how they felt because of this crime, what an impact it had on their lives. Just trying to build some empathy into them. And empathy is the process of entering into the world, into their world, the person who you, you've hurt, and feeling what they feel, and thus getting out of your own self-centeredness. Empathy is part of a good apology. Then there's next time. Matthew 3.8, John the Baptist says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. See, John had a word for people who came to be baptised by him, particularly the good religious ones, and it was produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, when you stuff up, the other person wants to know that you've thought through what happened enough to diagnose where you went wrong and you've thought about what you can do to avoid it happening again. They want to know you're fully intentional on avoiding the same thing happening over and over. Next time, produce fruit. And then you may have to take the fourth step, make restitution. One of the uh, outstanding scriptural examples of this is Zacchaeus. Jesus sees him up a tree. There he is. He's hoping to catch a glimpse of Jesus. And, and then Jesus signifies that he accepts him by says, come on down and go to your place for tea. Well, Zacchaeus, what does he say in Luke 19? He stood up and he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. That's making restitution, isn't it? 
But you see, sometimes you'll need to fix something. Sometimes you'll need to pay it back. Sometimes you might have to come up with an alternative or offer something else in exchange. And the you break it, you board it. The principle of taking responsibility for your actions requires restitution sometimes. What's the reward of making a good apology, of asking forgiveness? James 4.10 Because it feels like you're humbling yourself, doesn't it? But if you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Friends, this side of glory, we're always going to battle with sin. We're always going to be making messes. And asking forgiveness when we sin is the way forward. A church full of people too proud to admit their shortcomings is a church heading up for splits. But a church that is good at confessing their sins one to another is a church full of healing. It's a church full of people seeking growth in maturity. A church full of people who are willing to endure godly sorrow so that they are not ruled by pride, that's a church that can change the world. A church of people able to accept that they're all just a work in progress is a church that's able to face when they are hypocrites and then do something about it. It's a church able to be the community of love. And it's a church able to be a shining light, the light of the world from Ephesians 5.8. But now you are the light in the Lord. And so walk as children of light. Let us pray. Father, the process of forgiveness makes us shine like a light when we do it. We've got your word before us and I pray that your Holy Spirit will uh, open our eyes to see if there's anything we need to do to ask forgiveness of someone and uh, if there's something brewing that we fix it up in the power of God and the glory of God to reflect the nature of a God who forgives that this may be a light to the world of a new way of living. Praise your holy name. Amen.